Well, good morning. Okay, you know what I'm about to say, right? You know it's coming. Can we do better than that? Okay, good morning. Man, we are so glad you're here this morning. And you know what? I hope you believe just what you're saying, that he is good. Do you believe that? That he is good and he's good all the time, right? Even when life is not good, God is good. Amen? I hope you know that and believe that. Today, we're going to continue in our series, Defining Moments. We're back in the Gospel of Matthew. As we've gone through the series of Defining Moments, one of the things we keep coming back to, and I don't want us to miss out on, is this basic truth, is that we all face moments in life. How we respond to that moment is what shapes and defines the trajectory of our lives. Now hear me again, because some of you may be new, and I want you to miss this. We all have moments in life, and those moments do not define us. How we respond to those moments define and shape the trajectory of our lives. And now I was thinking about that this week and kind of getting my mind back in the mindset of defining moments. And last week we took a little bit of break and jumped into Galatians. But as I was thinking about that, there's probably one moment in my life. I've had several, but there was one moment in my life that was a huge moment for me. And it came between my, right at the beginning of my freshman year in college. And, and I've said this before, but, but uh, football was kind of my life in high school. I love football. I know you look at me and go, yeah, it must have been, but I was much skinnier back then. And so, but it's, football was still my life. And I had a friend of mine one time that said this, there was this girl he was dating and she's like, she looked at him and said, hey, Kevin, it's either me or your bass boat. And he's like, where can I drop you off at? I mean, so, so he, his, his fishing was his life. That's how it was for football. I mean, I literally, the dating relationships, I mean, if they in, impeded at all on my preparation for football, I just got out of those things. Why? Because football was the most important thing in my life. But yet I knew it was called a ministry, and so I went to Southwest Baptist University, got a football scholarship there, instead of going to like a Division I AA. And so I went there thinking, you know, I'm going to play football. I love football. My life's football, but also can begin this path of ministry. And I lasted two days at this school. And I'll never forget, I didn't hear the audible voice of God, but I could feel the, the nudging of the Holy Spirit early in one morning after the second day of camp, the hardest two days of my life. And I felt this nudging in my, my spirit that just simply nudged me to feel this way. It's time to go home. And I'm thinking, I just got here, right? Two days in. I'm feeling pretty good. The worst two days are over. You know, I'm on this path that I had spent the last four years preparing for. God, I'm doing, I'm going to be doing ministry. I've come to a Christian college to get my Christian education. I'm on the path to go the right way here. But the nudging didn't go away. In fact, it got more tense. And I just felt this need to go home. So I remember going to the payphone. How many remember what a payphone is? Okay, great. Those of you who don't, you stink, all right? So, so I remember going to a payphone putting my dime in, which that's what it was way back when, and calling my mom, saying, can I come home? And she said, why are you coming home? And here's literally what I told her. I don't know. I just feel like God wants me to come home. And I'm telling you, that moment for me. Now, if the story ended there, you'd be like, oh my gosh, you spent all these years working toward this, and you were even in appearance obeying the Lord, doing what the Lord wanted you to do, and now all of a sudden, he kind of pulls the rug out from underneath you. So if I stopped the story there, you'd go, oh my gosh, that's just like a, a terrible moment in your life. Well, when I went home, it was a terrible moment. Because when you go home of a town of 17,000 people where everybody knows your name, and when you walk in there, people go, why have you come back? I mean, I was like the one that they were like wanting to throw a parade for because this guy's going to play college football. We don't have many people from here ever go do this. And so everybody knew. So when I go home, guess what? Everybody wants to know, why did you come home? And the answer was always the same. Oh, I feel like God wanted me to. 
And I really wrestled for a couple of weeks there going, okay, God, all this in my place in my life, and yet now you've kind of pulled the rug out from underneath me. But here's what I do now. When I felt that nudge and I felt that, that desire in me that the Holy Spirit going, you've got to go home, here's what I felt. I felt like I needed to be faithful to do what the Lord was leading me to do. And in that moment, now there's been many moments in my life I've not responded in faith. But this moment, I did. And that moment shaped and defined the trajectory of my life. Now, when I went home, did I know that? Absolutely not. All I knew is I was trying to be obedient to the Lord. And it was a couple of months later, I became involved with the Baptist Student Union. And eventually, because nobody else won the gig, I became president, which means you had to lead the evangelism teams that went out to different churches and share the gospel. It also means that I, I was able to go to speak at different churches. So I had my first church as a youth pastor at the age of 18. Never should have happened, but my first youth pastor job was at the age of 18. And then seven months later, on May 30th, 1992, I met Sonia. And so I look it back, and I can see how God was orchestrating. And out of a faithful moment, God shaped and defined the trajectory of my life. Now, here's why I say that. You all have moments. We all have moments. And how we respond shapes and defines where we're going. You're at where you're at today, spiritually, relationally, because at some point in your life, you made some decisions that shaped and defined the trajectory of your life. Now, as we've been looking through Matthew, we've seen many, many moments. We've seen different people come up with different moments. And some of those moments, were, were they, they kind of came to the point of great faith. And other moments there, there was a lack of faith. And today, we're going to look at an interesting moment. It's a moment where the disciples come to Jesus. I love the disciples. I do. Because they possess such great tenacity and such great faith, but on the same time, they're about as dumb as a stump. I mean, they say things and do things, and I feel like I could have been a great disciple. I could have been as fickle as the best of them. And they come to Jesus, and they have this agenda. They have this inquiry they make with Jesus, and Jesus addresses the inquiry. The interesting thing is this. What he says to them is not at all what they hoped to hear. And what he says to them leaves them with this moment of, now what are you going to do? You've asked me a question. I've answered it. Now what? Will you respond in faith? And let it shape and define the rest of your life? Or not? So let's look into that moment. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. And because we're going to read a lengthy passage of scripture, I'm going to ask you to stay in your seats. Normally we stand. But I'm asking you to stay seated. And I want to read the first verse because it sets the tone for the whole thing. He says this, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what do you think they were really asking? Who's going to be the greatest, right? Now, we know from the rest of the passage and we know from the disciples, the question they're asking wasn't, hey, Lord, I want to be great for you. And how does that happen? That's not what they were asking. They were asking what your kids ask when they were small. Who's your favorite, right? You remember that one? Who's your, Dad, who's your favorite son? Well, I would just say it depends on what day it is, right? Depends on how you act. I mean, your kids come, you have three boys, like, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite? And then you would say the, the godly parent thing, well, I love you all equally and, you know, and all this stuff. And then when you, they would leave the room, you'd always have one come up to you and go, yeah, Dad, but I know I'm really your favorite, right? That's what's going on here when you read it, right? These disciples come to Jesus and go, okay, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Peter's probably back in the back of the room going, and John's like, no, 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 no. I'm the beloved disciple. It's got to be me, right? And so you can see this tension of, hey, Jesus, I just want to be great 
And what's it, what's it going to take for me to be great in your kingdom? And so let's look how Jesus answers that. I love this. Verse, verse 2 through 4 says this. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And some, some uh, uh, gospels say he put him on his lap. And he said this. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's interesting. They ask this question because they want to be great. And Jesus gives an object lesson like Elijah did a while ago. And he calls a child up. And some scholars even say that he probably put him on his lap. So this child is the center of attention. And I love what Jesus does here. He doesn't start with answering what it means to be great. He starts with what does it take to even enter my kingdom? Right? Now, here's why that's important. Because when people followed Jesus, oftentimes, it wasn't just the followers of Christ, those who had bought in. It was spectators. It was those who weren't sure yet kind of people. And they would come and they would follow Jesus. So there was a lot of non-believing people around Jesus. So Jesus wanted to be crystal clear. Let's put greatness off for a moment. And let's just talk about entry into the kingdom. And notice what he says here. He says this in verse 2. He says, truly I say to you, in verse 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's basically what Jesus says. If you want to enter into my kingdom, you must first turn. That word turn is the word we translate repent. Now, what would they be turning from? Sin, just what Elijah talked about. They would turn from sin and take on, it literally means the translations, and to take on sin. Oh, let's put that back up there if you could, Angie. That verse right there, verse 3. It says, and put in the midst of them, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, which could be translated, take on the nature of a child. Now, what is the nature of a child? Now, think about it. He's saying this. If you want access to my kingdom, it begins with this repentance, but also you need to take on the nature of of a child. Now, there's, we know a lot about children. There's two things about the nature of a child that we all know. Number one is this. They have the most basic, simple faith, don't they? I mean, you tell a toddler something, they're bought in because they just know you're smarter than they are. And in teenage years, they all flip-flops, but I mean, they know you're smarter. And so there's a simplicity to the faith. And I say that because of this. I think as believers, especially older believers, we do really good at complicating God's word. We do really good at complicating God's grace. In fact, when we come back in August, the whole series title is going to be how we are puzzled by God's grace. Because when we think about God's grace, we try to complicate it. We try to justify it. We try to make sense of it. At the end of the day, it is God's grace. We don't deserve it. He gives it. I'm cool with that. I'm great with that. But a child's faith is simple, and a child is a 100% dependent upon their parents, aren't they? When's the last time you saw a newborn baby go to the fridge and open it up and make a sandwich, right? When's the last time you saw a toddler do that? You don't. Why? Because children are 100% dependent upon their family, their parents. So here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, if you want entry into my kingdom, you've got to turn from your sin and you've got to take on the nature of a child. You have to come to a place where you have this simple faith and this place where you're totally dependent upon me. That was big. Now, I want to illustrate that with you this morning. And I've asked for maybe one of the most handsome helpers in the world to help me today. And that's Malachi. Malachi, uh, Don, it's not you. It's not you, Don. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, I'm asking Malachi. Malachi, Mom, come on, Audrey, come on up here. They're going to help me out here. 
That's all right. Take as much time as you want. It's okay. They don't need to go eat lunch today. It's okay. All right. Boy, I like your shoes, Malachi. Can you come up here and sit on mom's lap? Oh, there you go. Oh, there we go. Make your entrance known. Can you have a seat there with mom? Malachi, can you tell everybody up there hello? No, no. Okay. Okay. You just talk and I'll hold it. How's that? Can you say hi? No, we're done with the mic. Okay, great. So let me ask you a couple questions, Malachi. Is that okay? Hey, can you give me a high five first? Awesome. Okay, we're kind of buddies. So, right? Right, Malachi? We're buddies? Okay, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Here's the first one, okay? This is really important. Okay, you ready? Can you dunk a basketball? No? You mean you can't take a basketball and dunk it? No. No. Do you hear that? No, right? Now, would you have to have help to do that? Who would help you do that? Daddy. Daddy, yeah. Daddy would help you. Well, let me ask you a question, Malachi. When Daddy comes home from work, do you ever run up and throw your arms up in the air and jump at your dad? Uh-huh. Do you do that a lot? Does he ever drop you? No. Okay, that's good, right? So do you do it all the time? Yeah, yeah. And so it's awesome to jump and Dad catches you, right? Right. Awesome. Well, thank you, man, for coming up here. Can I give you five? Thank you. All right, everybody give Malachi a hand. Thank you, Malachi. Good job. Malachi's like, I don't know about this thing. I don't know about this at all. Now, here's all I wanted to do, all right? That was not a, like a really deep interview for Malachi. All I wanted to do was just simply this. I wanted to remind you that what I'm saying is true. Malachi, we talked about this earlier. He goes home sometimes. Dad shows up. Brad shows up. He just runs and jumps in his arms. I mean, Malachi, when he does that, does he have any moment going, well, wait a minute. What if he dodges me? What if dad's hurt his shoulder at work today and he tried to warm one arm it and just drops? Does Malachi think that way? No. Malachi in all abandon just runs and jumps. And guess what? He knows daddy's going to catch him. Right? And if we told Malachi had a, had a 10-foot goal here, dunk this basketball, we all know he can't do it. But with his dad's help, he can't. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. If you want entry into the kingdom, that's what I'm talking about. You have to have this full abandonment kind of faith. This simple faith that just says, Lord, I don't have to understand it all. I don't have to make, connect all the dots. But at the end of the day, I know I need you. And I declare my total dependence on you. And I'm just going to jump. And I know you're going to catch me. That's what it takes to have entry into the kingdom. And then Jesus moves on and only talks about entry into the kingdom. He talks now about greatness in the kingdom. Look at me in verse 4 again. He says this. Whoever humbles himself like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom. Now, he continues with this illustration and this, this object lesson of a child. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, listen, it doesn't happen by, with pride. It doesn't happen with achievements. It doesn't happen based on your talents and your abilities. Here's how you become great in my kingdom. Are you ready? Are you ready, disciples? You've asked me the question. Let me tell you. Here's how you become great through humility. Meaning, here's how you become great. You become the least. Here's how you become great. You become a servant to all. Here's how you become great. You put others' needs ahead of your needs. Here's how you become great. You yield to the authority and the leadership of the Holy Spirit every day in your life. Here's how you become great. You surrender. You want to be great? It begins with humility. Now, do you think that's what the disciples wanted to hear? They probably want to hear something like, well, just whoever can win the arm wrestling contest, you're in. You're the baddest. You're the greatest. You're number one on my team. Or maybe the one that can go out and preach the best and share the gospel the best or see the most amount of people come join his group and his movement. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, listen, if you want entry into my kingdom, 
It takes a childlike faith, turning, repenting, and being totally dependent on me. And if you're part of my kingdom, and you want to be great in my kingdom, listen to this. This is even better. If you want to be great in my kingdom, it happens by you becoming the least. Serving. Putting others ahead of yourself. Listen to how Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. It says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of who? Others. To be great in the kingdom of God only occurs through humility. Now, here's what I love about Jesus. You ready? I love that Jesus doesn't just stop there. They've asked him this basic question, what does it mean to be great in your kingdom? And Jesus, being Jesus, backs up and goes, well, forget about greatness for a minute. Here's what it just takes to get in my kingdom. Your good works isn't going to happen. You working really hard, being really good, doing all the right stuff, doesn't matter. It's about you turning from your sin, putting your abandoned trust in me, and living a life totally dependent on me. That's what it takes. And once you're in, and you want to be great, greatness happens through humility. And then Jesus does something amazing. Over the next nine verses, Jesus continues this illustration of a child. And he tells them really what it takes to be, to what, really what it means to be humble, to live a life of humility, and what it means to be great in his kingdom. And there's three things I want to point out. The first is found in verse 5 and 6. It says this. Jesus goes on, he says this. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, here's what Jesus says. If you're going to be great in my kingdom, if you're going to live a life of humility, here's what that means. That means we must be responsible with our actions. We have to be responsible with our actions. Now, here's why I want to point that out. And don't raise your hand because we know this is true. Many of us in a room today and people that we know we always want to point the finger at somebody else when something goes wrong, don't we? We never want it to be our fault. And we don't ever want to take responsibility. We always want to shift the blame somewhere else. And listen, that's not a, that's not a new sin. That goes back to the garden, right? You remember what, what, he, what Adam did? Who did Adam blame? He blamed God. God, the woman, you made me. God, it's your fault. And it's her fault. Because whose fault is not God? And then Eve did the same thing. It's the serpent. It wasn't my fault. It was the serpent, Lord. My point is this. We always try to shift away from responsibility. And if we're going to live a life of humility, and if we're going to live a life of being great for his, not for our own glory, but for his glory, we must take responsibility for our actions. There's two actions he mentions here. The first one is found in verse 5. He says this. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. We must be responsible in our actions. One of those actions is to receive other believers. The reception. That word receive means to embrace and to take in. Now, can I just say something to you with a lot of love? Because I think this church breaks the mold. But many of us have been in church life long enough to know this, that some churches have a very cliquish feel to them, right? Our 12 and no more. Our 100 and no more. And if you don't fit the way we want you to fit, and you don't look the way we want you to look, you don't act the way we want you to act, you know, there's probably another church down the road somewhere. Haven't y'all been a part of a church sometimes like that? I think we break the mold of that. 
But there's this reminder from Jesus that we need to be responsible in our actions. One of those is how we receive people. You know, people who have truly turned from their sin and could declare their dependence on Christ were to take them in with open arms. Listen, even the messy people. Are you with me on that one? Listen, we could go to Corner Lakes, Cypress Lakes, Bithlow, Wedgefield, and draw one big circle, and here's the conclusion we can all come to. There's a lot of messy people that live in those areas. But I would love to be a church for messy people, wouldn't you? Because guess what? You're messed up too. I'm messed up. And he says, listen, don't play this game of clicks. In fact, in fact, Jesus is saying this because in the first century church, there were some issues with this. And I'm just telling you, we need to be that church that says we need to receive people. If they come to faith in Christ, we need to receive them, take them in, embrace them, show them what it means to live for them. And he says, in doing so, it's as if we have received who? Jesus himself. Now think about that. Which means if we reject him, it's as if we had done what? Rejected Jesus himself. Be responsible with their actions. First one, he mentions about receiving others. The second action he mentions is about leading other people. Look with me in verse 6. I love this. He says this. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, in other words, whoever causes a believer to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Here's what he says. I want you to guard your actions. I want you to guard how you lead people. In other words, don't be a stumbling block to other believers. Don't be a stumbling block. Now, I just want to kind of pause for a minute, and I want to chase a really big rabbit, all right? I have met people in my life who look at different things in their life and say, you know, I can do these things because the Bible clearly does not say I can't do these things. And if that causes someone else to stumble, they need to grow up. Now, I want to tell you something, because I think if you listen to this, it might be like a punch to the throat. Ready? When we elevate our rights over our responsibilities, that is sin. Are you with me on that one? When we elevate what we have a right to do and ignore the responsibilities that the Bible tells us about, that is sinful. And Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to be responsible with your actions. And what is how you lead people? Now, he says, any of you that cause one of these little ones to sin. That phrase, cause to sin, could be translated, cause to fall. In other words, we are the ones that cause the falling. We are the ones that led them to that. Now, how do we cause someone to sin, or how do we cause someone to fall? Well, we don't force them to do it, but we can entice them to, to do it. We can influence them to sin, right? Now, think about it for a minute. How do we do that? How do we entice people to sin? How do we influence them? Well, maybe we entice them or influence them to do something that clearly violates the teachings of Scripture. Maybe we entice someone or we influence them to do something that totally violates what Scripture says. Let me just give you a couple of examples. One would be maybe you're in a room full of people and you're right there and you're the one telling the dirty joke that shouldn't be telling them. And you're enticing and you're influencing those who are watching you that what you're doing is okay. But yet Scripture says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So you just enticed and influenced other people that what you were doing was okay. What about gossip? I, you know, and I, listen, I know what we do. We Christianize gossip. Would you just pray for them because blah, 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 here's what they're going through. It's not pray for their situation. It's not pray for their health. It's not pray for them spiritually. Would you just pray for so-and-so because, man, they've just cheated on their wife seven times and they go to the bars every night and, and they don't ever come home and they're not paying their alimony. I mean, I mean that's what I'm talking about. We Christianize it. But it's still gossip, isn't it? 
And sometimes we influence and we entice people to join in on our gossip when we shouldn't. Let me give you another thing that maybe we entice them or influence them to do is maybe it's to disobey authority. Hey, your boss, he's just an idiot. You don't have to do what he says. Yes, you do. Romans 13.1 says that we're to obey those in authority over us. You don't have to like those in authority over you, but you do have to respect them, and you do have to obey them. And some of you may say, well, maybe your teenagers go, well, my parents are just, you know, they're just not that sharp. They are not the sharpest tool in the tool shed. I don't really have to obey them. Yes, you do. Ephesians 6.1 says, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land. Meaning if you don't, God might just take you out. Right? See, my point is this, is that maybe some ways we influence people, entice them, is by just saying, don't listen to the truth of Scripture. You don't have to do that. Or you don't have to obey your parents. Or we just say, hey, won't you just kind of join in on the fun? Here's what I know about the sin in the garden. Eve blew it, but misery always likes company. So what did she do? Come on, Adam. Join me. Join the dark side, Adam, right? Come on in. Don't we do that as well? I know many, many believers who walk a path of rebellion and to justify the rebellion or to ease the pain of the rebellion and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they try to bring other people in the rebellion with them. They try to walk the journey with them. Hey, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Let's just do this thing together. And I'm just telling you, Jesus says, if we're going to be humble and we're going to live a life of humility and we're going to live a life of being great for him, it means we have to take responsibility for our actions, how we receive people, but also how we lead people. See, Jesus takes this thing really big, and it's a big deal. Because notice what he says. He says, if you do this, it is better that you die a terrible death than to cause a brother or sister in the faith to stumble. Now, think about that. He's like, it's better for you to tie a large cinder block around your neck and go drown yourself than to cause someone else to stumble in their faith. So do you think this is a big deal to Jesus? So if we're going to live a life of humility and we're going to, to live a life great for him, it begins by taking responsibility for action. Second of all, it means being responsible to deal with my sin. Being responsible to deal with our sin. Look with me in verse 7 through 9. He says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptation come. But woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or to throne than thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye cause you to sin, tear it out or gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes that will be thrown into hell of fire. Now, here's what Jesus is talking about. He first of all starts off with saying temptations is going to happen. We live in a fallen and a broken world. Temptation is going to happen. But when we find ourselves in sin, he's like, you need to deal with sin drastically. You need to take extreme measures in dealing with the sin that's in your life. Now, Jesus uses figurative language here. I want you to know that, first of all. He uses figurative language, but this is an important figurative language because he's not literally saying, gouge your eye out, or if you steal something, cut your hand off. But what he is saying is this. Here's his point. Sin is a cancer, and it must be dealt with extreme. You must deal with it drastically. It is a cancer that has to be cut out. You can't play around with it. You can't let it linger. It will destroy you. Sin is a cancer, and you have to deal with it in an extreme way. He said better to deal with it than to face the consequences, right? 
Now, the consequences he mentioned here are kind of have this ambiguity to them because on one hand, for those who don't know Christ, that are following him, kind of checking him out, that has, it has great significance because if they don't turn from their sin and have a childlike faith and declare their dependence on Christ, ultimately, guess where they're going to spend eternity? In a place apart from him. He calls it the hell of fire or the lake of fire. That's, that's a reality for them. But we know for believers, that is not, hell is not are a reality for us. But Jesus uses hell as a way to remind believers the seriousness of our sin and dealing with it. So here's my question for all of us. How hardcore and are we really ready to do anything necessary to deal with the sin that's in our life? Now please look at me just for a moment. Answer that question in your head. Are we really willing to do anything to deal with the sin that's in our life? Maybe you look at your life, and I'm just going to throw out some sins. Maybe, maybe there's a sin in your life where you have an inappropriate relationship on Facebook with someone other than your spouse. And what, you, what everything inside of you would say to do is, well, maybe I just need to block them. No. You need to get off Facebook. You need to delete Facebook. Or maybe you're looking at some stuff on the Internet you shouldn't be looking at. That Maybe it's not full pornography, but it's heading you down that path. And you think, well, maybe I need to put more filters on my computer. No. You need to put it in the trash can. You need to be extreme in how we deal with sin. Right? And see, most of us, if you're like Doug, we try to let ourselves off the hook slowly. We'll create a little bit of a boundary, enough that makes us a little uncomfortable, but not too uncomfortable. Jesus says you have to deal with sin in an extreme way, with extreme measures. So once again, I ask you, how willing are you, how willing am I, how willing are we to deal with sin that extreme? Then there's one more thing that Jesus says here at the very end. Living a life of humility and being great in his kingdom means being responsible with our actions, being responsible to deal with our sin, and last of all, being responsible to desire restoration for other believers. Being responsible to desire restoration for other believers. Look at me in verse 10. It says this. He says, see that you do not despise, we're going to come back to that, one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and, and go search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the one over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the, so it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of his little ones should perish. Now here's what he says. He says, don't despise these little ones who've gone astray, basically. Now that word despise basically means to write them off. To look down on them. That doesn't mean to hate them. The Greek word here means to look down on them. Now maybe there's people that we know that claim to follow Christ that are believers and they've gone to a life of rebellion. They've walked away. And he says don't despise them. Don't look down on them. And don't look down on them maybe because of the depth of their sin. Don't even look down on them because of the nature of their sin. Listen, it's not our job to make judgment calls of who's worthy and unworthy to be pursued. It's not our job. Why? There's what he says there. I love this. You probably never read this in scripture. Pay attention. He says this. For I tell you in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. You know what that means? That we should never write him off. You know why? Because even that person's guardian angel is still ministering and caring for them in the face of the father. Their angel. Not our. Their angel. The one who's rebelled. And also, you know, another reason we shouldn't write somebody off is because God didn't write this person off. He went after them. He left the 99, and he went after what? The one. 
See, the will of the Father is this, is that whoever rebels would find their way home. Did you hear me on that one? Whoever rebels would find their way home. And I think for us, that's so important that we understand it's not our job to write people off. Because guess what? Every one of us in this room have had a moment of rebellion in our life. And guess what? Did he write you off? Aren't you thankful he didn't write you off? Aren't you thankful he didn't wash his hands and go, I'm done with that person. They've rebelled too many times. I am done. Aren't you glad they didn't write you, he didn't write you off? See, instead of what we need, instead of writing them off, maybe we need to go to them. Maybe we need to pray for them. And what we're praying for is restoration. I'm just going to tell you something that's crazy. I like to watch movies. But you know the kind of movies I like to watch? Not, not Lifetime. I don't mean that. Or Hallmark. This is Christmas. I love to watch movies that the threat of the movie is redemption. I love those. I love to watch movies that the threat through them is restoration. I love those. Because you know what? That's real life, isn't it? We all rebel. We all walk away. And by the grace of God, he redeems us and restores us. He says, so listen, don't despise those who rebel. Rather, pray for the restoration. Rather, know that I'm going after them. And my will is that they come home. Be part of that. Don't write them off. Go with me. And maybe some of us need to know those people, and we need to go to those people. And say, the Lord wants you back. He doesn't want to pay you back. He wants to bring you back. And you pray that God would restore them. Now, I don't know where you find yourself today, but here's what I want to challenge you with, especially for those of us that are believers. Maybe you look at these areas we've talked about today, and you just simply say this. You know what? I'm struggling in one of these three areas you just mentioned. I'm really wrestling. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to make some pretty serious commitments on those things. But I want you just for a moment to think about which one of these areas you struggle with. Which one? Is it how you receive and lead people? Is it your actions being responsible? Is it how you deal with the sin that's in your life? Is it with how we see other people? And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, let me just say something to you. This message is as much for you as it is anybody else. Because how Jesus started the story. He didn't talk about greatness first. He talked about entrance into the kingdom. And maybe you're here today and you've tried to do life on your own. You thought you could work your way and somehow or another you think that you're going to make it. If I can do enough good that outweighs my bad, somehow whatever cosmic powers there be, I'll get in. And I'm just telling you, there's a void that you're never going to fill with that mindset. Never going to happen. And today what I want you to hear me say is this, that all you have to do to gain entrance to the kingdom of heaven that will last forever is to turn from your sin and say, Lord, I don't want that to be part of my life anymore. But I declare my simple faith and my utmost dependence on you, Jesus. Here I am. And the Bible says when you do that, all of heaven will throw a party for you. Because those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do with me just for a moment. I'm going to ask everyone to stay seated for a moment. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And I just want to challenge you for a moment. I want to challenge believers. And in just a moment, believers, we're going to take a moment and we're going to stand and as we stand in a moment, I'm going to ask the band to play, and they're going to give you some, some, some moments to just respond to what you've heard today, to respond to how God is moving in your heart at this moment. And then we're going to sing and respond. If you want to come to the altar, it's here. But if not, would you, you can respond right where you're sitting today, right where you're standing today. But I want you to respond. So if you're a believer today, and you're really wrestling with maybe being responsible for your actions, 
You look at your actions, you say, you know what, there's been moments in my life where I have led people astray. I've led them to, to, to violate the teaching of Scripture. I've led them to, to disobey authority. I've led them a place I shouldn't. I pray you would confess that today. Because people are watching you. Your actions matter. And maybe you just need to confess that to the Lord. They say, Lord, I want to receive people and lead people closer to you, not away from you. So would you confess that? Or maybe you're a believer and you look at your life and you say, you know what? I have been too soft on myself in dealing with sin. And today you need to make a new commitment of the extreme nature you're going to take to address a sin in your life. And if you say, Doug, I don't know what sin there is. Well, do what David did. Pray. Search me, O Lord. See if there's any offensive way in me. And you know what? He will. And there is. And he will expose it. And will you treat that as extreme as it deserves? Or maybe you're here today and you know somebody in your life that has rebelled and walked away from God and you spend the last several weeks and the last several moments of your life, whether you know it or not, looking down on them. And you need to realize today that don't write them off. You need to pray for their restoration. You don't need to have a mindset going, well, they got what they deserved. What if you got what you deserved? Right? Pray that God would bring them home. To the believer in a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to stand. And I just want you to respond. Maybe it was one of those three things you need to do business with the Lord on. And then sing and celebrate with us. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, it's so easy. It's just saying, Lord, I want to turn from the sins in my life. And I turn to you. I don't know all the right things to say. I don't know all the right things to believe, but here's what I do know. I believe that Jesus died for me, and I accept it by faith, and I know that I need him more than anything else. And if you will just pray that, he will come into your life, and he will change you. Don't worry about changing your behavior, because guess what? When your heart changes, your behavior will follow. And if you're here today, and you say, you know what? I, I truly need to give my life to Christ. I'm just going to ask you, with every head bowed and eye closed, just slip your hand and put it back down. I'm going to be praying for you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm going to shame you. Just put it up and put it right back down. Amen. If you made that decision today, either let us know on the card or I'll be standing down front and we'd love to talk to you about that. But don't be ashamed of that. Celebrate that. I'm going to ask you, let's all stand together as I pray. All stand together. Father God, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for the truth and the power of your word. And Lord, I pray as we're about to sing that we would have a heart of abandon today. That as believers, we would take a hard look at some areas of our life. Where are we struggling? And when we make new commitments, Lord, will we commit to being responsible with our actions? Will we commit to being responsible to deal harshly with our sin? And will we commit to be responsible to pray for the restoration of those that we know are rebelling against you? Lord, I pray for believers today that you would convict us, that you would break us, that you would just put the hammer down on us to remind us that what we do and what we believe and how we live matter. And if we want to be great for you, if we want to be great for you, it begins with humility. Humility paves the pathway to responsibility. And Lord, if we want to be humble, may we be responsible. Lord, move in this place only as you can. For it's in your holy and your precious son's name we pray. And all God's people said amen. Hey, listen, as a believer, I'm just going to ask you to take a moment. It's between you and the Lord. You can bow your head. If you want to, you don't have to. 
and just respond to what you felt today. If you want to pray, the altar's open. If not, just respond right where you're seated and make sure you're faithful to do as the Lord leads you. And then we'll sing together.